This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. I'm Maura Dooley. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Man, halfway through summer already kind of feels like. I don't know. Is that is that where we're at? Anytime we hit the all-star break It feels like it just baseball, started. Yeah. But you're right. We're, we're kind of, I mean, it'll be over before we're, we know it here. And in Seattle, we're used to it that it's, it doesn't, summer doesn't start until July 4th. But we've actually been really spoiled this year. And we've had nice weather for a while. So is this the new norm? I don't know. I'm, I could get used to it having all this nice weather. It is the unofficial official start of summer on the 4th of July in Washington because, you know, while while the summer solstice is June 21st, I think everybody generally agrees summer around here doesn't really kick off until the 4th of July. And uh, we're happy now to be past that and into the, uh, the real meat of summer. Loving it. Well, what's going on in the headlines this week? Well, last fall, we talked about Kellogg's recycling their old cornflakes to turn it into beer because they wanted to minimize waste. They now are expanding upon that. The cereal maker has teamed up with a brewery in the U.K. called um, Seven Brothers from Salford Mm -hmm. to turn rejected Rice Krispies and Cocoa Pops into craft beer. The beer, which is a Choco Stout or a double dry hopped pale ale, are made from discarded grains from the uh, cooking processes at the local facility from Kellogg's in Manchester. They're trying to eliminate waste in the grains that don't make the uh, cut to get into the cereal boxes. One is going to be called the Sling It Out Stout, and the other is the Cast Off Pale Ale. Uh, They're made from flakes that fail to pass Kellogg's strict quality control control checks due to being overcooked, undercoated, or discolored. I'm not sure how I feel about uh, undercoated cornflakes, what are they exactly coated with, but uh, (laughs) there's a similar process used uh, where they're using now, in the Sling It Out Stout, 80 kilos of Cocoa Pops instead of malted barley during the mash process, which gives the beer a really deep chocolatey taste. They came up with this uh, starting off last November in the UK. They're looking at opportunities to upcycle food waste. That's an interesting way of saying to figure out a new term, uh, a new way to use it instead of recycle because it's upcycle rather than throw it away. Uh, They approached the Seven Brothers Brewery and about the prospect of expanding their range from their Corn Flakes IPA. And so far they are saying that the demand is going to be high for it and it'll be available in the UK. Again, if anybody gets your hands on um, a can or a bottle of one of these, which is going to be available at three select retailers in London. Uh, it'd be cool for us to get a, uh, a sample drink of it. Yeah, I just kind of picture, you know, whenever you would have cocoa puffs when you were a kid and, like, people liked the milk afterwards because it would turn into chocolate yeah. milk. Just picture, like, pouring beer into a bowl of yeah. that. <laughs> not sure how that yes. would work. Yeah. And uh, next up from the drinks business, Trappist monks turn to e-commerce to sell beer. Uh, the monks of the St. Sixtus Abbey in Belgium which is the the town they're in is West Verletten, is close to the French border. They've been brewing beer since the 19th century under limited production. And they were surprised to find that the beer that they were selling for about 250 a bottle, people were buying them in uh, large quantities. 
and then going and upselling them on the Internet for as much as $12 a bottle. The monks got a little upset with this, and they said it was a wake-up call that the problem was so serious that a single company was able to buy up so much of the volume from them and then mark it up uh, nearly five times. They're now implementing an online reservation system so the beer fans can only order two crates or uh, cases of beer every 60 days. That limits the access to it. Priorities given to those on the uh, wait list the longest. The reservation system means the beer lovers can select from three styles they offer, and uh, each case then has an additional deposit of 15, the equivalent of about uh, 17 U.S. dollars, redeemable by customers so that they can return empty cases and bottles for refills. So uh, the monks are now entering the 21st century. <laughs> That's thoughtful of them, though. They care about the customers and don't want them sold at inflated prices. Kind of makes That's me right. a little sad, though. It seems a little bit against what their traditional beliefs would be. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe they had to pray on it. Yeah. Uh, lastly, in the drinks business, a 200-meter urban vineyard is going to cover an office building in downtown Milan, Italy. Italy, uh, Milan is the uh, financial epicenter of uh, things happening in Milan, along with the fashion center. It's designed by an Italian firm, uh, Carlo Rotti Associati. They won a competition to transform a disused industrial site into an office building and research center. It'll be adorned with 200 meters of vines uh, trained on pergolas. 200 meters is, uh, what, 600 feet or almost uh, two football fields in length. So it's really going to reinvent that core part of downtown. It's going to literally cover one of the main streets through downtown, and uh, they're going to be growing really interesting things on there. It covers almost 5,000 square meters of public space or 15,000 square feet with terraces, greenhouses for urban farming, and uh, hydroponic cultivation. So next time I go to Milan, I'm going to go check this out because uh, maybe they're going to be growing some grapes there to turn into some really fascinating uh, wines in downtown Milan. The the renderings and the drawings look really impressive, and I'll be just interested to see if this ends up being a thing that catches on, if this is uh, the future, if there's urban vineyards to come in a lot of cities. I mean, it'd be cool just to look at, but if they can actually make bottles of wine from it, that'd be really awesome. Be fantastic. I I can see... uh, uh, in other cities doing this with hops and other things that are trellis um, requiring uh, to grow in uh, different environments, including here in uh, Washington, where we grow so yeah, many hops yeah. in Yakima Valley. My only concern would be, yeah, how does the city environment affect the growing, you know, the the growing and the pollution and everything? And so obviously, no, L.A. or a place where it has oh, a ton gosh. of smog, not ideal for that. So this will be interesting to watch develop. It will be. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, when a lot of people hear single malt whiskey, they automatically think scotch. But no, these are actually different, and there's some pretty distinct differences between the two. We'll hear about these differences from Distiller Dane next on Cast Club Radio. We are joined by Distiller Dane, usually joining us for Top 5, but we get to talk to you a little bit more in depth today. What's up, dude? Not too much. What's going on? Not much. We are so glad you're here because you can help us with the very important topic of American single malt versus scotch. Moore and I will both raise our hands and say that this is a topic we don't know that much about, but I feel like they often get confused, and it's definitely something that consumers want to know about. 
So we found this article on Forbes about what is really, truly American single malt whiskey. Can you take us through it? Yes, definitely. I also thought it was very cool that Forbes in general put this article out and also shouted out a lot of the craft distilleries kind of producing American single malts out there. Mm -hmm. They're also behind kind of creating this movement as well. I thought that was really cool. Basically, I can't say that I am the biggest scotch connoisseur. I don't know everything about it, such as like more about American whiskeys for the most part, but I do dabble into it. And like simply put from the beginning, scotch in a very simple term, basically whiskey from 100% malted barley produced in Scotland, and you can only produce scotch in Scotland, so you can't make scotch in America. So when it kind of comes down to it with this article, if we're making a single malt whiskey in the U.S., what do we call it? And, you know, besides just the U.S., this isn't just being done here either. There's been a large increase in demand from consumers from single malt whiskey made from Japan that has, like, been super hot the last couple of years. Um, Taiwan's even been coming up in there, and there's even been some coming out of India. But um, with the you know resurgence of craft distilleries across the whole country, there's actually been a lot making these 100% malted barley American single malts and been making really good ones at it too, some that are critically acclaimed and that you can find all over the country as well and even outside the country. So when it kind of comes down to it, how do we define what this whiskey is that is being made in an exact like self-identity or definition of it. And why do you think that the rise, does it come back to those small distilleries making this? Is it just becoming a more popular drink, sort of like we've seen the rise of gin uh, now coming back, being a more popular spirit? Yeah, I think I can't predict what the American cinema will be. I do know it. it's a probably a little bit lower percentage than like the hottest thing on the market right now that yeah. everyone's drinking. It just has been, but there's been a lot of rise in people making it. There's also been a lot of new varieties of malted barley being grown locally or regionally that people are getting their hands on that are allowing people to kind of make new nuances with whiskey. And whiskey's just been growing like crazy in the country between both men and women. So being able to get this and teach people about it and help define it um, provides more drinking experiences for everyone, too, and new flavor profiles. And so American single malt, I guess, is an American whiskey, but... You know, just considering an American whiskey is almost a little bit too broad of a statement because that also encompasses, you know, like bourbon, rye, wheat whiskey, blended whiskey, and it's not quite exactly like those. So kind of finding the answer to find what a single malt whiskey made in the U.S. is and what people kind of have an expectation, at least a small expectation about it, uh, would be beneficial for both producers and consumers. One of the interesting things in the article is, you know, a lot of this is, an essential step in the process. It's being dominated by tradition outside of the U.S. with scotch, you know. And in an article, they talk about how a lot of these U.S. distilleries produce single malt in a manner that's different than the traditional American whiskeys and scotch whiskey. And then we have the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. Like, thank God that's around. (laughs) Um, And it's helping to create a standard of identity for American single malt. The unique thing, which I saw they were kind of going back and forth in the article was this category is it's basically not even defined at this moment and it's still young so it opens the doors for creativity um, from all these people producing it um, and experimentation and there's kind of like two sides to that Um, i'm huge in creativity and experimentation and pushing boundaries um, because you get new flavors profiles uh, new processes ideas And like I said, most of that is pushing the boundaries to try to create something kind of new, which never been heard of before. I guess the counterbalance to that or the other side of that is that 
you know, at what point and where in that area does it surpass being an American single malt anymore, especially that it's not defined? I guess an extreme measure of that is like you wouldn't want someone to be able to create a vodka and call it a bourbon or a bourbon and call it a vodka, essentially. As someone who does like that creativity and kind of pushing the boundaries and trying new things, does it bother you that there's kind of this strict code to whiskey making or in this case, scotch? Or do you think that kind of having those guidelines is important? That's great. I always kind of go back and forth with that one because, <laughs> you know, like we're talking about how this isn't defined. Every other spirit that's being made in the U.S. has the definition and category that illegally has to fall under, and there's rules you have to follow. The fun, or I guess the not so good thing about it, you're like, oh, why is the government telling me to make it this certain way? It's <laughs> not exactly like that. But um, the great thing about it is exactly what I just said. Like all the bourbons arise in American single malt, you know, there's different things about them on each one you taste and where you produce them. But still, when you go to an American single malt or bourbon or rye, you have at least an expectation going in mm-hmm. of what it could be. You know, rye is going to be more rye heavy and at least have those spicy peppery notes. Uh, bourbon's a little sweeter in nature. Um, and then the American single malt, depending on the malt they're using, the flavor profile behind it, it, it gives you more, especially the consumer, an expectation. Because, um, like, if you're involved in the be- beverage industry, you have a little bit more knowledge at least and at some point you can tell if a spirit is too far off from how it's supposed to be portrayed in a category or definition but for the consumer that could be a lot harder to tell and predict. Do you think it's only a matter of time before this becomes more standardized for American single malt? I think it is a matter of time it's been and like we've been talking about I mean this is an article on Forbes going out now it's gaining a lot of recognition mm-hmm. um, and since it's not fully defined right now and a lot of people are making it they're there's going to have to be some kind of self-identity or definition at some point because we do want to make it an actual category as well. And just like other spirits like bourbon or scotch, their needs, like we just talked about, they already have a definition identity. So how do we do that now with this American single malt? The definition makes it a real identity and still it still provides room for creativity and experimentation at the same time, but still at least keeps it in that realm so you kind of know what you're diving into at least when you go into it. With the spirits that you work with at Heritage and the years that you've been doing it, have you seen any small areas of the guidelines that you have relax, or are they pretty steadfast? No. I mean, a lot of these have been around for a long time, actually. You know, a lot of them are very old. So I think there's been a few changes here and there, but nothing dramatic. And I don't know in the time that at least I've been in the industry, I don't even think I've seen a new full category, you know, being portrayed just like what we're trying to do here. I mean, right now, there is a definition by the TTB for malt whiskey. I mean, this works just like a bourbon or rye. It means that for malt whiskey, it only has to be made from at least 51% barley. So single malt technically could be defined under there because you could just use 100% barley in the ratio. But then there could be all these other people producing whiskeys that have that minimum 51% and also shoving all this corn, rye, wheat, any other grain in there. That's kind of where the definition kind of comes into play to kind of create more of a distinct category. It creates too much room to make too many spirits on kind of opposite sides of the spectrum from each other. It's too American whiskey-ish and not American single malt whiskey. The American Single Malt Whiskey Commission um, actually went to their website, and they actually have a proposal for the definition and kind of what to follow, which was great. And they kind of listed it down so... They suggest that it's made from 100% malted barley, distilled at one distillery, mashed, distilled, and matured in the U.S., 
um, matured in oak, not exceeding 700 liters or 185-gallon barrels, distilled no more than 160 proof, and bottled at 80 proof or higher. The thing about this definition, it's pretty similar to a lot of the other ones. We aren't even asking for a whole lot. Um, It kind of goes off some of the Scotch guidelines, but a lot of the definitions and rules that are placed on other American style whiskeys too. Wow, it's fascinating. And we'll be following along. And thank you for being our our resident expert on this because I feel like I already know more about it definitely than I did to begin with. So thank you, Dane. Yeah, you're welcome. And I think you're sticking around, right, for a top five. So that will be next on Castle Oh, yeah. Trudy, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, we always love any excuse to talk about good food and good drinks, and Bite of Seattle is going to have both. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about the history of Bite of Seattle? Absolutely. The Albert Lee Appliance Bite of Seattle happens on July 19 through 21 at Seattle Center. Over 37 years, uh, the Bite has been going on. It's a free community festival with over 200 food and specialty vendors, live music, the bike cooks cook-off, there's spirits, beers, craft beers. It's really a great festival for uh, all ages. Wow. Yeah, that sounds incredible. And how long have you been working with the Bite of Seattle? I have been with the Bite of Seattle for over three years and have loved every minute. Food is my passion, so I'm in the perfect environment. (laughs) Yes. Well, and we're kind of in the perfect city for that as well, right? Yes, absolutely. Seattle uh, has a really great uh, dining scene, and and it's growing every day. Even in those three years that you've been a part of the festival, how have you seen it evolve? The biggest thing I've seen is the the trends of food um, and the diversity in some of the food that are coming through, uh, the young chefs that are coming up and, you know, taking over the scene. It really is a great thing to see. It's not a standard, we're just not a seafood place anymore. There's so much diversity in the food, and I think that's what keeps people so interested in the the dining scene, and it's something I certainly enjoy exploring. (laughs) Why do you think that youth movement is happening? Is it just because people are are willing to open their minds to to some of those young chefs now more than ever? Absolutely. I think um, as our palates change or as they cycle, um, there's always something new, and it's always about that experience. So food's not so much more, uh, so much rather just about the, the taste anymore. It's the overall experience of, you know, you eat with your eyes as well as your, as your taste buds. So I think that's why people want change. They want something fun as well as keeping with some of the traditional uh, food items as well. And how many vendors do you have participating this year? I know it's gotten huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're growing every year. Um, so over 400,000 people attend wow. the festival over wow. the three days, uh, food and specialty vendors. Where we're about over 200. And so that includes food trucks, restaurants. We have specialty food vendors. There are artisan uh, street vendors. There really is something for everyone. And you're down there at the Seattle Center, which is an awesome location, but it, it does get kind of busy. I saw on the website you actually even have some recommendations for people on ways to, to get down there to, 
to partake in Bite of Seattle. Absolutely. It is a really busy time of the year. I mean, it's such a beautiful venue at uh, Seattle Centre. There are multiple ways guests can uh, find their ride, whether they use the monorail, uh, carpool, uh, you know, use the tunnel to get through, even walking. I mean, it's such a great city for walking around. So that's, that's probably one of the best ways to get there is to just... Just keep in mind, plan ahead. There will be additional traffic, uh, foot and and vehicle. So just plan ahead so your your journey to the bite starts off smoothly and then you can enjoy everything the festival has to offer. Well, speaking of those offerings too, we touched a little bit on the food, but what about the drink Mm -hmm. side of it as well? Heritage Distilling, obviously our sponsor, uh, they'll be doing Mm -hmm. some delicious cocktails. What can guests expect from the drink side of things? Absolutely. Craft Spirit Cocktails um, appear in our outdoor beer gardens. And so Heritage Distilling is bringing Elk Rider Vodka, which is absolutely delicious, um, into some signature and classic cocktails, um, including a new summer punch, which is Elk Rider Vodka, passion fruit, orange juice, really summery, in addition to the famous and fabulous brown sugar bourbon, my (laughs) absolute favorite. Sorry, that, that will be making an appearance, <laughs> definitely. Awesome. And I know we talked about all of the local chefs here. We actually have quite a few mm-hmm. kind of celebrity chefs here, and they're doing something fun called the Bite Cooks. What exactly mm-hmm. is that? The Bite Cooks is um, it's a, a live cooking demonstration stage um, presented by Albert Lee Appliance and Thai Select. And uh, Chef Thierry Ratterall, the chef in the hat, he is in his 12th year of uh, hosting the Bite Cooks, which is really exciting in itself. And it features local Seattle area chefs, uh, as I said, performing cooking demonstrations. And really exciting is chefs go back-to-back in a a cook-off mystery ingredient battle. So they're given 30 minutes, three mystery ingredients, and they have to come up with something really exciting that uh, is judged by select audience members to become the Bite Cooks master. And uh, that's really fun. And some of the chefs that we have... Um, coming through uh, M. Collins from Alcove Dining Room in Seattle, the Brazilian food, um, Brittany by Dullivan from Dahlia Bakery. There, there are so many. And we even, for the first time in Bite Cook's history, have a junior, uh, oh, junior cool. chef. So <laughs> mm, Hannah Kumar from uh, Junior Sushi at Seattle is our first ever junior. She's nine years old. And oh, she's my goodness. Cooking. I know. And That's incredible. I wasn't doing that at nine years old. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. Probably making... Eat ramen or yeah, something. ruining, <laughs> being a pain in the kitchen to my mom, unfortunately, yeah. probably at that age. Well, how long has, so the, how the, has the Bite Cooks tradition been going on? Well, so we're in the 12th year of uh, wow. Chef Terry hosting it, um, and that's our, he, he's fantastic. He yes. really knows how to engage the crowd, and it's changed every year, I mean, in terms of the new chefs coming through, the mystery ingredients, and we try to theme it. Uh, based around every day the mystery ingredients we seem it you know like so pacific northwest favorites obviously we have some seafoods and then rainier cherries and it and it's really fun um they're not the ingredients by the way chef yeah. if you're listening <laughs> <laughs> but um it, it really is it's a great thing and, it, and it's it's just a chance for audience to sit down um you know learn some of those cooking skills if if they're interested as well we have recipes for guests to take with them and the fun thing really are those um, mystery ingredient cook-offs. 
I used to live right down by Seattle Center, so I loved going to Bite of Seattle, and I always felt like mm-hmm. I need I needed to go more than one day to kind of get to try everything. Mm-hmm. But you do have something Absolutely. cool set up called the Alley, where you can kind of make sure mm-hmm. you get to try quite a few places at once, and it and it goes to a good cause too. Yeah, so the Alley is our six course multi bite experience on the Fisher rooftop, um, it and it's a chance for Seattle area restaurants they come together. And it's one plate for $20, and guests will actually get six individual bites, like one individual bite from six of those restaurants each day. And the proceeds do benefit Food Lifeline. And what's really exciting this year is we have our grand opening ceremony on Friday the 19th of July with Tom Douglas, renowned chef. He was once a host of the Alley, and he is a a Food Lifeline ambassador. So that's something really exciting this year. Um, it, it's such a great great way to come down. Some of the restaurants, uh, Ferrales, uh, Cezanne, Tin Lizzie Lounge, Conscious Eatery, who are back for their third year. And it's, it's a really great mix. The menu changes every day. So if you come one day, you're not going to get the same thing uh, next day. <laughs> and that's uh, us advocating. Yeah, you can't really get the full experience if you go just one day. And, and you can go no. with different people and each day if you want. Yeah, and there's so much in addition to, um, as, as we said, there's so much food. There's the alley. We have um, also munchies at the mural, which is a fun area where it's those photo, you know, social media worthy mm-hmm. foods like dragon's breasts and, and footlong flies, uh, fries. And it's in addition to that, I mean, the really exciting thing this year, as we just launched yesterday, is called Gladiator of the Grill. Mm-hmm. Now, this is brand new to the bite. Um, it's a barbecue competition, which is a world, which is a qualifier for the world championships, which are held in Texas at oh, the end of the year. Wow. So chefs from barbecue master chefs from all over the USA and Canada are going to come together for three days of back-to-back competition, and the winners of each uh, session automatically gets a golden ticket, which is their entry to the world championships. So this wow. is brand new, and we are really excited to have this on board. So, and are these also kind of local celebrity chefs? Are these people that are just interested in this competition? So the the Gladiator of the Grill, um, actually, we bring in chefs from all over the USA oh, cool. and Canada. So wow. some of these chefs have been on multiple TV shows, like Chopped, um, you know, and they do have that absolute you know barbecue circuit they're they're ingrained with um all things barbecue so it's a it's a really serious competition and um uh saffron hodgson who's the the bush cooking queen of barbecue herself a, a fellow australian she's the mc and it's it's going to be really great it's really exciting something worth checking out at the festival well, I think I'd be willing to go down there and try to help yes. them fine-tune their skills right? before Texas. I'll be a yeah. sample tester. <laughs> Any, I'll volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> hands up, double hands exactly. up. Exactly. There, there really is something for everyone. I mean, we touched on spirits with Heritage, which is one of my favorite parts of the festival. But also we have our craft beer and cider tasting, which is incredibly popular. Over 70 craft beers and ciders that guests can you know, purchase a tasting package and um, experience that in addition to everything else happening at the bite itself. Trudy, you couldn't have said it better. Something for everybody. We want to make mm. sure people go and get more information, go and get tickets. Where can they do so? 
So just remember that the Bite of Seattle itself, it's a free-to-attend festival, so it's only food um, and drinks that guests actually purchase. Um, All-ages festival, absolutely. Um, www.biteofseattle.com for all information, including experience packages, which we do have some discounted food and drink packages for sale as well. Perfect. And do you re- recommend on the day of that people bring cash? Do you, What's your biggest recommendation for day of for purchasing food? Honestly, um, majority of the vendors will accept both cash and uh, debit or credit card. However, I always say that for some of those unique vendors, just carry some extra cash on you just in case. Perfect. Well, Trudy, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us about Bite of Seattle. Uh, Great food, great drinks, and there's part that's for a great cause. So we'll make sure people check it out. Thank you. Yep. And so as we say, meet me at the Bite. Yes, (laughs) that's perfect. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, Distiller Dane joins us for another top five, including perhaps some more things that you can do out and about in the great city of Seattle. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Radio. We kept him hanging on the line because he's just that nice. Distiller Dane uh, joining us today. We talked earlier about uh, American single malt, but now we get to get into your latest top five. Are you feeling pretty good about this week's top five? Is this pretty strong? I'm feeling pretty good. It was a little kind of rainy and muggy out during the week. It's cleared up a little better, so we got some fun things on the list. I love it. Okay, let's start us off. What's number one? Number one on my list, it is all weekend long, and it's going on as we speak right now down in Ballard, and that is Ballard Seafood Fest. Yes, I have been to this. It is wonderful. Yeah, we had them on the show last week, and they they got me salivating just talking about it. (laughs) There's so much going on, and it's free to get there. They shut down in the middle of the street, which is always fun. Uh, But, I mean, tons of food vendors, obviously a lot of seafood there, smoked salmon, crab. But they also have live music. There's a beer and cocktail garden. I think you can find some heritage spirits in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a good time overall. It's going on Sunday, too, so you still have a lot today to catch up on and hang out there all day tomorrow, too. Is there one particular booth or food that you recommend people get to? I've heard a lot of good ones, so I, I have not been before. Oh, okay, So I'm yeah. going to have to go and try it out for myself, but I'm... I heard there's a lot of good stuff going on there. So you I don't, can't go wrong. You can go wrong. Yeah. I know there is a large crab and uh, salmon stand there by some local companies, and those are pretty notorious. Yeah. The only way you might be able to go wrong is I, when I spoke to them last week, they said there's like a loot fish eating contest. Nope. Negatory. That, that's supposed to be kind of gross. Negatory. So I would, I would stay away from that, but I yeah. would watch people do it. That would be entertaining. Yeah, exactly. There's I almost that... mentioned that, but I didn't know if it was top five. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Number two on your list. I kind of had a little secret launch on July 4th, but that is Stranger Things Season 3. <laughs> awesome. Have you guys got a chance to catch up on it? I have not watched it yet, so no, yeah. no huge spoilers, but are you loving it so far? Yeah, no spoilers at all. I'm liking a lot. I'm not a binge watcher necessarily, so I've been kind of going Good slowly through the season Taking as it launched. But uh, it's kind of interesting because the kids are a little older. They yeah. actually showed a, I think they showed like a flashback in one episode, and you're like, oh my gosh, they are a lot older. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it still has a lot of funny parts, and there's actually some like kind of intense, suspenseful scenes as well, and the soundtracks are always good. Yeah, the, that's my favorite part generally, the cinematography, the, the soundtracks. They did such a great job with that. Okay, Stranger Things is number two on the list. Number three. 
Uh, so number three, this is a have not been to this yet. Hoping to go soon. It just opened. I think they had like their soft opening last week, but it's a new cocktail bar um, in the Belltown area of Seattle, and it was actually opened up by a Seattle bartender famous for working the Zigzag Cafe, um, and it's called Roquette Cocktails and Spirits. Yeah, I'm always down, especially. We talk a lot about local celebrity chefs here, but we have some really amazing, pretty much celebrity bartenders too. So if, it's, if you said that it's uh, someone that's known for working at ZigZag, I'm sure it's amazing cocktails. Yeah, it's supposed to be a little fancy, intimate, and fun cocktail bar. Um, they're supposed to have a lot of French influence, so a lot of French spirits that you normally want to find anywhere else. So I'm going to go check it out on my next trip to the area. I've already heard and seen some good reviews and things about it, though. This awesome. is great, and we can follow up uh, in the future so that you can give us your recommendations of what to order there. It's perfect. Number four, sir. Number four on my list um, is a seasonal summer collaboration IPA release put on by Fort George Brewing Company every summer. Just started about a month ago, and that is the three-way IPA. Have you guys got a chance to try this yet? No. Uh-uh. You oh, always my gosh. tell it's us so first good. about so, any beers. Yeah, each year they do a collaboration with three breweries, so it's always put on by Fort George. Um, and this year they, it's a collab with Ruse Brewing and Cloudburst Brewing. Um, and then they go fast. When they hit the stores, you definitely got to keep an eye out. Um, one fun thing this year is they're actually releasing three versions throughout the summer, and each version emphasizes um, a nuance of a certain hop. So if you check the bottom of the can, there's a laser code, and it'll say the name of the hop on there. Oh, cool. Wow, that is really neat. Okay, cool. And number five. Number five for the summer weather out there, I got to put on the list because I recently just got back into it, and that is hammocks. <laughs> Ooh, yes, nice. a yeah. classic. Yeah, I can't say I've never really been a hammock guy. I've ever had one, but just recently got one, and they are so relaxing and comfortable, actually. So on a nice day, you can just put it out, lay in there, swing down, enjoy the summer weather. <laughs> and to make it better, you can throw a gin and tonic in the mix, too. There you go. Now, yeah. do you hammock in your own yard? Do you take it on the go? What's your preference? This one I got for the yard, but I've seen a lot of those fun ones that they're like really light. You can pack them in a bag and on the go and just tie it up really quick. So I might might have to do a little small upgrade and get one of those too. I love it. I always see someone at Alki Beach has found like the two trees that are perfect for a hammock and it's like, like, why didn't I think there? I know, genius. (laughs) I know, you never think about it, but it looks so good when when you see it. Well, that is another perfect top five. Thank you, Distiller Dane. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Before we send you out of here, we, of course, as always, have a new cocktail recipe for you. This one sounds like it'd be pretty good in a party atmosphere. It is. This requires a punch bowl. It's called the Tropical Tempest Punch. This has a couple different alcohols in it. It's uh, our BSB brown sugar bourbon and some of our mango vodka. You can get those at any of our uh, tasting rooms or order it online for delivery. You need 12 ounces of the BSB brown sugar bourbon, 12 ounces of the mango vodka, 6 ounces of lemon juice, 6 ounces of lime juice, six ounces of grapefruit juice, six ounces of orange juice, and six ounces of pineapple juice. So really two parts of BSB, two parts of mango, and then one part of lemon, lime, grapefruit, orange, and pineapple juice. It's obviously a very citrusy, fruity drink. Uh, Put it in a punch bowl, stir it, cover it, put it in the fridge for two to three hours, and then uh, pour it in the glasses that have ice and garnish it with some pineapple chunks. Ooh, Um, yeah, that sounds nice. Grown-up fruit punch. I like it. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Okay, well, this will be available at heritagedistilling.com. You can check out past cocktail recipes there as well. You can also download episodes of the podcast. 
That's right. And you can check us out on Facebook at Cast Club Radio. You can uh, find us on Instagram. Uh, you can see lots of things we're doing at heritagedistilling.com. Send us emails with ideas, comments, suggestions, or questions to Radio at heritagedistilling.com. And as always, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Thanks for hanging out, and we'll catch you next week right here on Cast Club Radio. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling.